In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Martha Lamb, author of a new book that dives deeply into the fascinating history of the beauty industry. Here's a snippet from their conversation. By the 1920s, curves were out and, and then was in. For 30s and 40s, curves were back. And then the hourglass figures of the 1950s we see next, and the icons of femininity who were the Hollywood glamour girls, very much inspired those, Marilyn Monroe, Kim Novak, Jane Mansfield. And it doesn't end there. Then all of a sudden, in a complete about face from the curvaceous figures of the 1950s, the new feminine ideal in the 1960s was willowy, um, almost to the point of emaciation and androgynous. And when we think of the 1960s, I think most of us think of the English model Twiggy with her elfin crop and her very boyish frame. And then that cultish thin ideal continued through, carried over into the 1970s. And then we saw iterations of that in the 1980s with the supermodel phenomenon, and then again in the 1990s with the heroin chic wave. By the 2000s to 2010s, finally, beauty was redefined. And what we were seeing, thanks to the body positive movement, was a capsizing of these rigid standards of physical attractiveness. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Thank you, Zoe. Martha Laham is a professor at Diablo Valley College in California, where she has taught business, marketing, and advertising for 30 years. Martha is the author of Made Up, How the Beauty Industry Manipulates Consumers, Preys on Women's Insecurities, and Promotes Unattainable Beauty Standards. In her carefully researched book, Martha peels back the mask on the global beauty industry and paints a vivid picture of how all of us are influenced by our largely superficial notions of beauty. Hi, Martha. Tell us about your book. It came about... Uh, Many years ago, I had been working in the advertising and promotion industry, and when I left that industry and went into the education field in the mid-80s, I was teaching marketing and advertising, and already I had sort of developed an interest in the representation of women in advertising, even when I was an undergrad. And uh, I started in those days, as you remember, Mike, we had to read magazines and we had tear sheets, clippings, right? And I started collecting more and more. And then my folder grew and grew and grew. And then at one point I was in my office, I took out just a pile of articles from the mid 1980s until about a few years ago to see what was the progression of changes in the way that women, the portrayal of females in advertising. And I noted that not that much had changed. The needle hadn't moved that much. The focus still w- was on the these um, stereotypical images. Then I took that information. I thought, well, where are we really seeing a preponderance of that type of messaging and imagery? You don't have to look much further than the beauty industry. And then I took a deep dive into the industry and started using a very specific industry-specific conversation to build my thesis around. 
the industry itself is continually evolving. It's disrupting and reinventing itself. Somehow the beauty industry manages to push the emotional buttons of each new generation. What gives the industry that kind of power? Uh, Size, the size of the industry and corporate media, which propagates image culture and specifically Western beauty ideals. So the size, let's look at the size. The beauty industry is monolithic. Uh, it's estimated at a value of about 532 billion now and is expected to grow to a market value of over 800 billion by 2023. So this is a huge industry. And what I think uh, also on top of that, they got tons of money. Think about it. Their gross margins are anywhere between 60-80%. So think about how much, even if they took 10% of that was spent on advertising, imagine how much advertising they can buy. So they can inundate consumers with messages from traditional or legacy media that we know is print, broadcast, outdoor, direct marketing, all the way to new media or digital media. And now these outlets have completely changed the landscape. So the winners and losers are going to be those that can leverage digital, the digital marketing, digital marketing tools. And they are doing it. I mean, just think of Instagram. So that is their power, their ability to use that power by I want to use the word exploit, but by leveraging corporate media to propagate certain beauty ideals and by doing so, they're able to promote the products, sell the products, and also influence demand for those products. Wow. So Martha, you mentioned that one of the industry's overarching themes is equating beauty with youth and youth with beauty. Could you take a moment and talk about that equation of equating beauty with youth? Right. So we're talking fundamentally about the feminine beauty ideal, which is a socially constructed notion that uh, physical attractiveness is an important asset that women should achieve and maintain. So for each, each era, we see the perfect woman, how that is defined. So now you look at the beauty industry itself. So we have something, there's something called the thin ideal, which is an ultra thin, uh, a a very ultra thin feminine uh, physique. Then the thin ideal is communicated in thin ideal media, which is the use of female characters and programming and messaging that equates thinness as an avitation's trait and furthermore links this to beauty, happiness, and uh, success. Who does this better than anyone else in the marketplace? I think the answer would be the beauty industry. So the danger becomes when women and girls are constantly comparing them themselves to this thin beauty ideal that's promoted through the media and advertising and there is a gap between the real and ideal which creates body anxieties which could ultimately lead to things like eating disorders. Martha, unnatural standards of beauty have been with us for a long time. Uh, During the Elizabethan era, for example, fashionable women strove to appear extremely pale. Tell us about the age of pallor. 
paleness was the beauty standard during that particular era. If we look at the Elizabethan era, and it, even to the extent that uh, Elizabeth I was known to wear the mask of youth, which was uh, something that I can't pronounce it, but it's the spirits of Saturn, but it was a particular product that she wore, very white, white, opaque skin. And um, it's believed that, that she is uh, attempting to cover up some scars from smallpox. And oftentimes there were deadly products that were used to achieve that paleness, which included lead in the product. So these were very toxic uh, substances that women and men were using. Initially, uh, makeup was considered something uh, scandalous and, and even criminal. And um, at what point did, um, did it become okay for, for regular people to wear makeup? It really began uh, in the uh, second half of the 19th century. Uh, by that time, this is when I believe that it began just in the research. And that was really the beginning of the uh, modern era, the modern era of the beauty industry started then because, as you know, there was the development of mass production uh, pr methods as well as mass marketing, which made beauty products or cosmetic products, as they were called then, more available uh, across different societies in the world, including America. Prior to that, especially during Queen Victoria's reign, it was considered vulgar to wear makeup. And it really fell out of favor during that period. And only the courtesans would uh, be wearing makeup. Uh, and then that changed. I mean, I hope your readers, your listeners will pick up the book because it goes through the entire timeline. But I do say that during the late second half of the 19th century is when we shot, saw a growing acceptance of using cosmetics. You've mentioned that many of our standards of beauty haven't changed very much over the past 10,000 years. Was that a shock to discover? And do you see signs of change today? Uh, that was. And what I discovered, Mike, was that uh, beauty standards run in cycles and that each era defined ideals of feminine, feminine beauty. And if I may, just let's look at Western ideals of beauty. I mean, I want to just look at those for a moment because what I noticed was the pendulum would swing. For instance, the Eurocentric ideals of beauty were adopted by American women during the 17th century. And the public figure that had the most influence on those standards was Peter Paul Rubens. And you've probably heard of the term the word Rubenesque or Rubenesque figure. And so he was famous for painting depictions of women who were very fleshy and voluptuous and full-bodied. And then during the Victorian era, uh, roughly uh, 1837 and 1901, that's when the hourglass was prized, that hourglass figure. Then by the 1920s, curves were out and, and then was in. For 30s and 40s, curves were back. And then the hourglass figures of the 1950s we see next, and the icons of femininity who were the Hollywood glamour girls, very much inspired those, Marilyn Monroe, Kim Novak, Jean Mansfield. And it doesn't end there. Then all of a sudden, in a complete about face from the curvaceous figures of the 1950s, the new feminine ideal in the 1960s was willowy, 
um, almost to the point of emaciation and androgynous. And when we think of the 1960s, I think most of us think of the English model Twiggy with her elfin crop and her very boyish frame. And then that cultish thin ideal continued through, carried over into the 1970s. And then we saw iterations of that in the 1980s with the supermodel phenomenon. And then again in the 1990s with the heroin chic wave. By the 2000s to 2010s, finally, beauty was redefined. And what we were seeing, thanks to the body positive movement, was a capsizing of these rigid standards of physical attractiveness. And then to speak to your second half of your question, yes, things have changed today. Uh, what Today, what we've seen with America has become a very multicultural mixed nation. And so narrow ideals of female attractiveness are peeling away. And increasingly, Americans are embracing beauty and diversity. In addition to culture, race, gender, ethnicity, and physical abilities, diversity and inclusivity also include age. Martha, how are we doing in terms of accepting the idea that older people can also be beautiful? Uh, I do think there's more of a democratization of beauty. Um, you know, we are in a very youth-oriented society, so I do think that um, there is still culturally a focus on youth and beauty. But I think that there is, uh, we are witnessing more inclusivity and um and I think a lot of that has to do with the aging of baby boomers, because we're a very large cohort, not as large as the millennials. Now, the millennials have surpassed us. But I think that maybe in large part, that's it. Martha, this is a very well-researched book. How many sources did you wind up including in your book? Roughly 1,100 sources. These were information sources, and uh, they were drawn from articles in journals, newspapers, magazines, articles from trade publications. Um, I referred to scholarly books, nonfiction books, textbooks, library databases, and then something as we know of as gray literature, right? All of those government reports, uh, proceedings, data, statistics, that kind of material that's uh, generated or produced by outside uh, organizations, outside pu commercial publishing and academic publishing. Wow, that's quite a bit of work. About how long did you spend researching the book? Well, uh, roughly, I started about 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago. <laughs> I became interested in this topic. And uh, so I started collecting uh, articles about it. And then I was tracking it to see if uh, how much gender representation and gender bias in advertising media was changing or progressing. And I found that it wasn't really. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to write about it, contribute to the conversation in some way, maybe elevate it to the next level. Martha, tell us briefly about your career path and what led you to writing. Broadly, just looking in broad brushstrokes, I started in print media and I worked um, for an investigative tabloid and then a consumer magazine. And then later I went into the advertising industry where I worked in 
uh, research and account management. And then my final big move was into the educational field where I have remained for more than 30 years, primarily teaching general business, business management, business marketing courses. Martha, would you be kind enough to read us a portion of your book? Okay, yes. Uh, So um, I'm going to be reading from uh, the chapter titled The Beauty Industrial Complex. And the section that we're looking at is the history of cosmetics from the Stone Age to the Industrial Age. During Queen Victoria's reign, heavy makeup fell out of fashion and its use was discouraged. Queen Victoria herself proclaimed that makeup was improper, vulgar, and only appropriate for use by actors and prostitutes. By the 1800s, women took a subtler approach to wearing cosmetics. An ancestor of cold cream, creme celeste, which was made of a combination of white wax, vermicidi wax, sweet almond oil, and rose water was applied as a facial paste to moisturize the skin, hide blemishes, and create a light, silky complexion. To hide imperfections and create radiant skin, women dusted their faces with rice powder, zinc oxide, or pearl powder, a combination of bismuth chloride and talc. Clear lip balms, often made of beeswax, were applied to the lips to give them a shiny, moist appearance. Some beauty rituals posed certain dangers. For example, both men and women took small quantities of arsenic by ingesting arsenical products, such as complexion wafers, liquids, and pills, to maintain a pale complexion, which could cause nervous system and kidney damage. Also, women were known to apply drops of belladonna to their eyes to dilate their pupils to create an alluring, wide-eyed look, which could lead to blindness. Oh, my. That's a steep price to pay for looking beautiful. And it really says something about our our addiction to beauty. Um, What is it about the human race that makes us focus so much on on our appearances? Yeah, it's so interesting. That question... Yeah, that question fascinated me. And this is one reason why there is a chapter that looks at beauty, the just philosophically, sociologically, and psychologically, uh, right? Because uh, what we see is that beauty is in some ways universal. So, for example, this idea of symmetry of beauty, although there's some arguments uh, that In fact, it peels away when you have much larger sample sizes, but we do tend to have certain physical traits and they are based on, uh, I think, on gender, although I think that that is shifting a little bit more in recent times. That was my conversation with Martha Lamb, the author of Made Up, How the Beauty Industry Manipulates Consumers, Preys on Women's Insecurities, and Promotes Unattainable Beauty Standards. I hope you found our conversation interesting and informative. On a conscious level and on an unconscious level, the beauty industry has an impact on all of us. And I'm glad that Martha tackled the subject in her book. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.